So again, I think the problem is arguing over what should the public say is the proper policy for how many human beings can cross lines on a map. That's a crazy way to solve that. We don't use that approach for other things like how many TVs to produce or how much food to grow. We let you know private property and markets solve those. So the same thing here. So my solution is to say privatize the borders. By which I just mean, in an ideal society, everybody, every piece of land would be owned by private individuals and they could set whatever policies they wanted and that would solve the problem. Transmitting directly from the launch pad. Bringing blue collar to your cell tower. The rock and roll libertarian himself. It's time to blast off. With Johnny Rocket. Hey, this is Blast Off with Johnny Rocket, and I'm here with my Ray Truth, Miss Raylene Lightheart. Hey, guys. Hey, Johnny. Raylene, how are you? I am doing good. I'm so excited it's the weekend. Oh, I know, right? Yeah, I'm ready. I've been working for the weekend. What was that rock song? Everybody's working. That's me. Everybody's working for the weekend. Yes. Is that the one? Yes. Oh, wow. That's sorry, guys. That was bad. That was, that was good, actually. It wasn't too bad. It wasn't too bad. Here's the thing. So this week, I thought I'd just talk to you about it because you're a girl and you know this stuff. I was at a job site and I was working and doing my thing and I went to the bathroom, which was like a unisex bathroom. Mm. Right. And it had this little sign on the wall and it said like, well, if you're a dude, basically it said something like if you're a guy and you're using the toilet, make sure you lift the seat. And then when you're done, put the seat down for us ladies. And I'm sitting there. Oh, so it, was a, it was a lady owned sign. No, it wasn't <laughs> a lady owned sign. It was like a unisex bathroom. Right. Right. So anyone could go in. Yeah. But then I started right. thinking about it. I'm like, OK, so I like followed the rules because I'm programmed that way. Right. Because most men are. Right. OK, I'm, I'm a dude. Right. Right. My question was to you. Why is it my responsibility to raise and lower the seat? Oh, see, here's, here we go. Okay, no, I'm just, I'm just throwing it so, out um, there. Yeah, you know, this is the thing. I am an equal opportunity lady, so I expect everyone to close all the effing seats and open them as they need because boys use a seat too when they go poo. So the point is, oh, everybody you should You had be- to say the word. I hate that word. I did. I went there. Well, good morning. Okay. I literally believe that everyone is responsible to be a good neighbor and we should all try. And that means closing the seat after, including the ladies. Why do they not have to close the seat? That's what Everyone I'm saying. Everyone should close the seat. No, yeah. like what I'm saying, I can see it as a dude raising the seat, but why are yeah, we you obligated? You have to raise the seat for you. Everybody should be opening the lid for themselves and possibly the seat. I, I don't really care if everybody just followed that rule. There would be no problems. I you agree. You should be in charge. Yep. I think everyone. <laughs> really. yeah, exactly. No, but what I'm saying is everybody <laughs> should be like taking care of their own. You know what I mean? I agree. Right? I agree. So if you want to raise it, lower it, whatever, however you want to leave it, that's it's up to you. Yeah, you guys, your ass is your to take care of. Figure it out. That's right. That's right. Figure it out. All right, Raylene, are you ready for our guest? This is going to be a great show. I know. Let's do it. I'm excited about this show. All right. Yeah, you're excited. All right. I am stoked. All right. So Robert P. Murphy is a research fellow at the Independent Institute, research assistant professor with the Free Market Institute at Texas Tech University. He is the president of Consulting by RPM, senior economist with the Institute for Energy Research and associated scholar with the Ludwig von Mises Institute. Dr. Murphy is an author of books, Lessons for the Young Economist, The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Great Depression and the New Deal, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Capitalism, How Privatized Banking Really Works, Study Guide for Ludwig von Mises Human Action, Study Guide 
guide for Murray Rothbard's Man Economy and State with Power and Market, and Study Guide to the Theory of Money and Credit by Ludwig von Mises. He is the co-host with Tom Woods on Contra Krugman and now the Bob Murphy Show. Okay, Raylene, prepare for liftoff. Copy that, Johnny. Covers, tie-downs, and grounding cables. Removed as required. Communications connected. Check. Preamps in the grain. Check. Cold beer. Double check. Thrusters are hot. Raylene, are you ready to rock? All systems go, Johnny. Let's blast off with Robert P. Murphy! Glad to be here, guys. Uh, can I make a comment about your analysis as an economist? Yes, yes, I would love it. I, I think clearly, like let's say it's a it's a workplace and there's ninety percent guys and ten percent women. That would clearly be inefficient if every guy goes in there has to raise it and then lower it on the off chance the next person's going to be a woman. So clearly that's inefficient. Mm-hmm. That, that would be my. <laughs> that makes sense though. Like it, it, exactly. Yeah. So if there's like ten dudes and right. one chick. The dudes, it's in their best interest just to leave the toilet seat up. Right. Yeah, that's a community standard that they have all kind of chosen to do. Not only that, but as a lady, if you're living or working with a bunch of dudes, you know, there's grosser things than the toilet seat being up and down that they might have to encounter anyway. Clearly, I will say, like, you know, at a home, so you're, you're eating dinner at someone's house. I mean, clearly there, you put it just because it looks nicer when you go into a bathroom with the seat's down. But right. yeah. that's that's a that's an aesthetic thing. But in terms of just raw efficiency and getting people in <laughs> right. and out of there, you know. Exactly. It makes sense to me, actually. Actually, it does. But, you know, all it's just a toilet. It's gross. Wash your hands, guys. Everybody, just wash your hands and it won't be a problem. Yeah. Who sits on a toilet without looking to see if there's a seat on it? What if there's something in the toilet? Like, do not check inside? Yep. That's laziness oh, on the like women's part. Entitlement to expect a man to move the seat for you, but also not put the lid down and just keep it ready for you as a woman. Like, that's just ridiculous. That's ridiculous. But think about the germs, too. Like, why is the guy have to be lifting and closing it and up and down all the time like the way the germs are the same when you're open it or close it for even a woman so to be fair the germs are a a non-issue because it's consistent for everybody okay i've I've eliminated that for you johnny i did the work okay cool don't worry okay mr murphy thanks again for being here on the show and it's been like i think it's been about a year or two since you've been on the old johnny rocket launchpad and now you're here on blast off and you've done a really you've done some great things in the last few years and since we last talked could you give us an update about your projects and talk about the new Bob Murphy show? I'd love to hear what you have to talk about on that. Sure. So I guess since we talked, I had a book come out called Contra Krugman, and that was a compilation of some of my best articles that I've written critiquing the Keynesian New York Times columnist, economist Paul Krugman. Of course, I do the, the podcast with Tom Woods, and so this was sort of an offshoot project tied to that. And uh, I really do think like people who like free markets and they sort of just rest on principles and big picture ideas, and they probably think like, oh, well, the data gets all confused. Just straightforward. <laughs> you look at the data, and it's pretty obvious. Just to give you one example of what I mean. Right. So the Obama stimulus package, you may recall that you know they were warning people, hey, if we don't act, and so this is early on in 2009 when Obama comes in, mm-hmm. if we don't act soon, you know, unemployment might get up to a you know, certain like nine percent or whatever, and unemployment got higher with the stimulus package than they were warning would happen if they did nothing. Right. And so that was pretty famous. But it was the the mirror image on the on the flip side when they pushed through the so-called austerity program. Keynesian forecasters were saying, hey, if the Republicans get their way and do this crazy austerity, then the economy is going to perform this poorly. But if not, then th- this is the baseline. So they did get the so-called austerity and the economy did better than the Keynesian forecasters said would happen if they didn't do this crazy Republican budget cutting. So again, it was the flip side. So in, in both cases, they could say well, on the first side, 
well, gee, the economy was worse than we realized. And on the flip side, it was, well, the economy was better than we realized. Good thing. But right. so my point is that, you know, you, the data scream out that government spending money doesn't help the economy. And it's just, you know, their a priori framework that makes them, quote, see that in the numbers. Um, and then, yeah, as you say, the other thing I've been doing is since we last talked is I launched uh, the Bob Murphy show, which is just my own podcast where I interview people and then occasionally we'll do solo episodes to talk about, you know, typically economic stuff like immigration or uh, the Federal Reserve. And, you know, how do they pay interest on reserves and the right. method by which they're they're funneling money to bankers? And I don't think the public fully realizes just you know how big this scam is. that They started in, in the fall of 2008. Very cool. Very cool. Wow. So Johnny has recently been described as a titan in his industry, which I thought was really cool. But Johnny and I both think easily that you're a titan in your industry. You're everywhere. What is the most tedious topic for you to talk about these days? And what ideas are the most interesting to you right now? Huh. A titan. That's interesting. Wow. I guess that we we need to clash with somebody. I was actually called a titan? Wow. That's awesome. Who said this? Yeah. I'm going to send them like a... Are you sure they didn't say tight wad? (laughs) (laughs) There you have it. I mean, I, I appreciate the question and it's a good one. And I'm just trying to think and it's, I'm trying to, it's, uh, I mean, there was a period right after I did my dissertation where for people who have been through this, where I was so sick of the topic, which was capital and interest theory, which is a pretty esoteric thing on the Austrian theory of, of interest rates and what's called time preference. Mm-hmm. And right. so for uh, several years, I didn't even want to hear the phrase time preference and I was sick of it, you know, for a while, <laughs> okay. but, but that's, yeah, but that's gone. And so now it's the other way around where I'm like, hey, how come no one's asking me about this path-breaking work I did in my dissertation? You know, I'm getting ignored <laughs> over here. So I'm, I'm pouting about that now. Um, I know on, on Contra Crewman, Tom, I think, is getting a little tired of us constantly dealing with you know proposals to raise taxes on the wealthy. But on the other hand, to me, it's like this seems like this full-court press where it was every day there's some new proposal. And so I think that, no, like we have to keep hammering back because I think that's the way the left gets a lot of its way on things. They'll start out with stuff. I mean, I remember, I don't know if you guys remember, when I was younger and they were doing things like restricting uh, cigarette smoking and things like that, and people were like civil libertarian types and right-wingers were saying, oh, what next? Are you going to tax fatty foods? Right. And people were rolling their eyes and saying, you, oh, you guys are crazy. Nuts. This yeah. is a serious... And they, we, do, we are getting that right now. Yeah. And so yes. like, that's yeah. the way you know the left kind of pushes back. Is they, they say stuff that at the beginning everyone dismisses as completely absurd and then that's the mainstream position 20 years later. So You're not wrong. You're yeah. exactly right. <laughs> no, yeah. no, that's great. So guy. that's my long way of saying that even some things that, like, yeah, like I, in my mind, oh, I've already made all these points. Let's move on. I, I guess I've presented a lot on the what, you know, QE and how the Fed's blown up acid bubbles and stuff. But on the other hand, I'm not sick of doing that because, like, that's really a critical thing right now, especially, you know, now as the Fed's tightening, we see what's happened in the stock market. So to answer your question, I actually, no, I lately, it's not that I've ever thought, oh, I got to do this again. I, I suppose uh, what's interesting me more recently is just, yeah, trying to see beyond the, the narrow economics, because I think like lostral libertarian types, our economics is solid. And since, you know, for decades now, we've had the right theories. And it's just a matter of it seems like, geez, how is it that it's so hard to win the messaging game? You know, why, why is right. it that we're always starting out where the, the public has a knee-jerk, intuitive, emotional reaction, and we have to sort of like talk them down and convince them against their will? You know, right. that's how it feels like sometimes, and I don't know why that is. Because Where have you landed on that? Yeah, where have you landed on that? I think it's um, to not concede the moral high ground. In other words, to not make it sound like, 
oh, okay, we know you have your, you know, your intentions are well, are good. You know, the, these progressives that want to, you know, take 70% of somebody's wealth, their, you know, their intentions are good. And it's just, you know, look at the incentives. I think that's wrong. I think it's to say, whoa, we, you're just going to take somebody's stuff. You can't do that. That's theft. Right. You know, that and, is theft, and yeah. they say, wait a minute. Well, you have way more money than people. And there's a lot of people in Africa. So are you sending your money over to them if you want to reduce inequality? And of course, they won't say yes. And so, like that's to me. So certainly, the economic, you know, incentive analysis and that that's important, but not to just make it about that sort of. Because I think that implicitly tells people, oh, you're right. Socialism really is a more noble experiment or ideal. It just has some practical difficulties. And no, actually, socialism's evil. It is. It's morally wrong. And speaking of which, you've done some talks on tension amongst people like there is a great divide here in america and people are very distrustful of people and where do you think this stems from you think it's media and do you think this could eventually turn into something really bad like a civil war because i mean every time i open up my facebook there's two sides going at each other and us libertarians are like you're both kind of wrong the government shouldn't be involved in this like the you know people who are against trump people are for trump or against trump i'm very indifferent on trump but I noticed like there is a huge divide in our country. What do you predict might happen here with this economically and personally? Yeah, so this is something where I have just been shocked by, again, the, the vitriol and just it started out. The thing that really struck me was remember when that guy Richard Spencer was like talking to a camera and someone comes up and punches him. Right. And then punch a Nazi was trending. Right. And it was what was surprising to me was just. The ease with which people were like, oh, yeah, if, if you if someone's saying views that you find reprehensible, just go punch them in the face. Right. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. not you know, people weren't saying or a lot of people were not saying now they shouldn't have done that. But, you know, I kind of see where that guy was coming from, you know, or right. I'm not losing sleep over this. I'm not crying tears. But, yeah, you shouldn't really go punch the guy. People weren't saying that. They were, you know, openly joking about it. And, and so that sort of, huh, that's kind of funny coming from the, you know, the party of tolerance and the yeah. people who want diversity of opinion and so it's to normalize <laughs> the violence against anybody who disagrees so they went right, right for the nazi so if you think yeah. of hitler, the most evil person is hitler so if they make that okay then they can incrementally bring it back you know the left is very good at radicalizing right and then the more recently i, I mean it's perhaps cliche at this point but i was stunned by the the thing with those kids from the covington school yeah, and you me know too. that, that pro just how quickly it went from zero to 60 and, you know, people calling for kids to be murdered and not like some random guy on Twitter with 23 followers, but like huge blue checkmark people with thousands or tens of thousands of and, you know, only reluctantly taking this stuff down. And it was just like the left routinely just goes to murdering their opponents, like kind of sort of tongue in cheek. Right. And yet, you know, yeah. the other side, if they make a joke that's somewhat based on ethnic humor, that's like a fire fireable offense. Yeah, you know? <laughs> and it's just sort of like, what the heck? Yeah, well, it's like cultural Marxism. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I did not realize how, and I don't know, and I'm curious what your guys' thoughts are too, Like, because were people always thinking this all along and Twitter's just showing it to us, or is Twitter like amplifying it and letting people I don't know. really explore this hatred of their fellow American? I don't know, but... I think it's happening. I think we're getting angry, and I think it is because we have a bad economy that we're being lied to about personally. And now we have the voice and it is starting to polarize even more. It's crazy. Yeah. So, what, so what concerns me is that, yeah, I'm seeing all these tensions brewing where people are laying the intellectual and ethical framework by which it's okay to, you know, take rich people's stuff just because mm -hmm. it's okay to punch people that you disagree with. You know, it's okay to smash cars and stuff if you're upset because a speaker came to your campus. 
and and said horrible things, and so you can go smash stuff. That's fine. And, <laughs> right. You know, yeah. So that that's all been you know we've been getting that messaging for a couple of years, and then so yeah. So if I'm right, you know the stuff that I and some other people are saying about like the Fed and how it has to tighten, and there's going to be a worse crisis coming compared to 2008. It's going to be even worse because the Fed's blowing up even bigger bubbles and so on. Right, right. But yeah, imagine with how much people hate each other's guts right now if, you know, money from Washington gets turned off and unemployment's 15%. Like, can you imagine how bad it'll be then? Right. You know, I have a buddy, Rob Stratton. He's with Launchpad Media, and he's in the construction business. And he said in 2008, he's also an Austrian, he was like, in 2008, right before the crash, there was no work. And it starts usually in construction with homes. And he has witnessed that homes are not being built anymore as of right now. And the decrease in price of gasoline and all these other indicators that he thinks that there's going to be a hard crash happening soon. What is your opinion on this? And is it something that we should look out for? Like, what are some hints in the economy that we should kind of look out so we know, like, hey, this is coming like now or anytime? Yeah, yeah. So he he's right that yeah, the plenty of housing markets. You know, they're reporting re- really drastic reductions in sales. You know, year over year and that kind of thing. More generally, if if people know what the yield curve is, that's like the interest rate on longer term bonds versus short ones. Normally, the longer bonds have a higher rate. Like you have to get pre promised more a higher return to keep your money tied up longer. Right. But mm-hmm. then occasionally, it, the yield curve inverts is the term, meaning short term interest rates are higher than long term. And so since World War II, every time that's happened, that the yield curve is inverted, there's been a recession shortly thereafter. And any time there was a recession, it was preceded by a yield curve inversion. So it's a pretty good, you know, warning sign that has not had false positives or negatives. And so that it's not inverted right now, but it's it's close to, you know, so a lot of people like even just mainstream financial watchers, not just Austrians are, are looking at that in terms of standard Austrian theory. Like, yeah. What causes the boom bust cycle is the Fed floods the market with cheap credit that pushes down interest rates to artificially low levels that causes an unsustainable boom. And then when the Fed eventually tightens, there's going to be a crash because printing money doesn't create real resources and interest rates, you know, have a job to do. They serve a function. And so if the interest rates are artificially low for seven years, that screws stuff up. So yes, to answer your question, I think there is going to be a big crash. The stuff I've been looking at would suggest it's conceivable we get through 2019 without seeing a huge crash, but I would be very surprised if they got through 2020. Interesting. Wow. Interesting. There has been a significant boasting about our economic growth under Trump's administration, mainly the creation of jobs over the last several months. Where do these metrics come from and are they the correct ones to use when analyzing claims like this? Okay, so th- yeah, this gets uh, complex, and I'm, it's going to sound like perhaps I'm waffling, but it's not. It's just I think it's nuanced that no matter who became president, like if Ron Paul came in, you know, in the last election, there would have been a crash because, like I said, I think the Fed, you know, blew up an asset bubble. Resources were misallocated. A lot of long-term projects were started for which the economy didn't have enough real savings to complete, and so that's what a recession is. That's like the economy saying, "Whoa, we're doing stuff wrong here." We need right. to move you know, workers around. And in a free society, there's not like some Politburo that orders people around. There's not central planners. If workers are going to the wrong place every morning for work, how does the economy tell them you need to go somewhere else as they get laid off? Like That's what happens. That's the market's way of correcting you know, if it's on the wrong trajectory. So that would have happened no matter who was president. And so, but I think what, given you know, the situation, what Trump did actually, I think the spending is bad. Like he's spending way too much money, but in terms of just narrow economic things, that that tax cut, it's not the one I would have designed. Like I would have tried to provide more, you know, in other words, saying this is how much 
money we're allowed to, quote, spend on returning money to taxpayers, I would have right. picked one that was better. But nonetheless, cutting the corporate income tax rate in terms of standard economic theory, that's the corporate income tax is one of the most destructive things to growth because that's penalizing saving and investment. So in terms of, you know, stimulating long-term growth, cutting the corporate income tax rate is actually, you know, a pretty good thing to do. The tariffs are goofy, but <laughs> right. Trump has deregulated a lot, particularly in the energy sector. I was amazed by how radical Trump's, you know, things were. I mean, he he put a guy in charge of the EPA that had had a lawsuit against them. Pulling out of uh, the Paris Agreement when everyone's saying, oh my gosh, our grandkids are going to be underwater. Thanks a lot, right. Trump. Uh-huh. I mean, that's kind of bold that he just said, I don't care. You know, I, mean, I think part of what happened was because the left threw every name they could think of at him, it's sort of like on the margin now, they can't touch him because he survived all his attacks. And so now they've lost all their leverage because there's nothing worse they can do than what Word. they've been doing. Yeah. Hilarious. So, yeah. Um, so again, to answer, I think that some of that growth is justified or, or you know, is based on, quote, fundamentals. But you're, you're also right, too, that like the, uh, the official unemployment rate, I think, is misleading, that there were a lot of people that left the job market altogether. And so if you're not looking for work, you don't get count as unemployed anymore. Right. And so I, I think there were some structural, particularly like at the lower age levels. You saw it during the Obama years. There were a huge proportion of people that just dropped out of the labor force. And I think that was a combination of how bad the economy was. Minimum wage hikes kicked in like right at the worst possible time. So it was there was plenty of segments of the labor market getting hit with like double and triple whammies. Exactly. And yeah. I think Trump's policies, some of them may have helped. But yeah, I don't. I don't think they fixed the underlying problem. Like I say, no, no matter what, once this huge crash comes, then you know that's going to make everybody be underwater. Yeah, our economy is the actual house of cards. <laughs> yeah, well, like the thing is too, though. Like I always laughed. I said, well, you know, they they probably just count the people who are on unemployment insurance, and after that runs out, you're no longer unemployed anymore. You're not. You're not on the system, so they can't really count you. So our numbers look really good. You know, that that was the thing I always had. Speaking of Trump, though, you did a speech with the Mises Institute discussing immigration, and I loved your solution, Mr. Murphy. I thought it was awesome, and I agree with you 100%. Could you mind telling our listeners kind of about that, your your solution to the immigration problem? Because I think it was fantastic, and it was, it was awesome. <laughs> All right, well, thanks. So, yeah, just to preface it, um, to give it an analogy, so something like like prayer in public schools I think there's no there's no solution to that, right? Because both sides have a point that right. people who are secular or you know worried about I don't want the government ramming some religion down my kid's throat, that's fine. But on the other hand, you can see religious people saying, "What my kid? You know, he's allowed to learn about condoms and things and all different lifestyle choices, but he can't you know say grace before meals." Are you kidding me? You know, so there's you can see, and the and the answer is well, then privatize the schools, right? And so parents, you know, if there's a secular school, then you know parents who want to send their kids there can do that. If there's a religious school, people, and that's really the way you solve social conflict. And so nobody's forcing sure. anything down anybody's throat. <clears throat> it's all private property, and do it that way. So likewise with immigration, both sides have legitimate points that you know. Some people can say, look, I want to hire somebody. He happens to live in Mexico right now. There's an apartment owner who's willing to rent him a place. It's all voluntary. We want to do it. And you, some abstract group of people is going to say no because it's going to hurt you know, the culture. Are you kidding me? So I get that. On the other hand, you could say, well, no, these people are going to come in and they're going to vote for Democrats and make a bigger you know, welfare state. That's going to ruin the country. You know, That's why they're leaving their land is because look what happened at their home country. Right. They have legitimate points, too. So, again, I think the problem is arguing over what should the public say is the proper policy for how many human beings can cross lines on a map. That's a crazy way to solve that. We don't use that approach for other things like how many TVs to produce or how much food to grow. We <laughs> okay. let you know yeah. private property and markets solve those. So the same thing here. 
So my solution is to say privatize the borders, mm-hmm. by which I just mean in an ideal society, everybody, every piece of land would be owned by private individuals and they could set whatever policies they wanted and that would solve the problem. So I know people say, well, come on, that's not practical. And I said, okay, if you want me to give you a more practical thing, like how do libertarian candidates you know, deal with something thorny like abortion who are running for president, <laughs> they say quite plausibly, leave it to the states. You know, there's, that's not something the federal government needs to do. And so I'd say, okay, well, why don't you at least leave the, the border issues to the state governments? Like why should people in Hawaii be able to vote for senators who have something to do with how many people come into Texas from Mexico? Mm-hmm. That seems kind of crazy to me. And so I don't, again, I don't see why this is a national issue we need to determine. Clearly, the people who are affected by, you know, immigration are more on the border states or slightly on the interior. And so they let them set their policies as a, as a sort of practical stopgap measure in the meantime. But ultimately, yeah, I think it just shows you why when you try to use politics to solve social disagreements, it leads to, to conflict. And there's no, there's no good solution. Can't agree more on the, the morality of market borders. It's, it's a good stuff for me. So... With environmentalism and carbon taxes being pushed by the state more and more, what can you tell us about your work with the Institute for Energy Research? Sure. So here, this is an area where I was naive going into this, that I kind of thought that, you know, okay, yes, I could have my my principal libertarian concerns and you'd be worried about a slippery slope. But, you know, surely the standard case that these people are pushing does follow naturally from the science. And it turns out, no, that's not true. That, that like the UN will come out and so, the, so it was last fall where there was a special UN report saying that you know the two degrees Celsius target really isn't enough. We need to really push for a one point five C target. And by the way, let's just say out loud the idea that we're going to be fine tuning yeah. the temperature of the planet. I mean, just shows the hubris of these people. But okay, I'm just, my <laughs> right. point is on their own on their own terms. I, it's not like I had to go to some you know alternative science published by the Heritage Foundation, I went to the UN's own Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC documents that, you know, synthesize the science, the consensus to show that, no, their own work clearly indicates that that goal would would cost more than it would gain. In other words, that doesn't make sense even using their own stuff. Mm-hmm. And and the guy who won the Nobel Prize, William Nordhaus, for his work an economist for his work on the economics of climate change, it was announced like the same day as that UN report comes out. Nordhaus's own work shows that doing that sort of a goal would cost trillions of dollars more in like lost economic output than it would spare in climate change damages. So it's just this Orwellian thing where a guy's being awarded the Nobel Prize for his work on climate change, which shows that the UN's call is for a goal that is crazy and completely unattainable. And yet the news is reporting it like, ah, just, you know, yet more evidence that these deniers are keeping their hand in the sand and the science is clear. And so that's what I mean. It's it's crazy. I like the Obama administration, you know, they would put out stuff and I would just quote from their own. Let me just give you one example. So the government, its own internal reporting rules for consistency you have to have cost-benefit analyses for regulations to make sure that they pass the cost-benefit test. And you need to use what's called a discount rate, right? Like if the benefits are going to accrue in the distant future, you discount them into present dollars because you know a million dollars in the year 2100 is not the same as a million dollars tomorrow, that kind of thing. Okay. And so the regu- it clearly calls for using 5% and a 7% discount rate, or three, sorry, 3% and a 7% discount rate. And so you can use whatever ones you, else you want to, but you got to use those just for consistency so we can compare across different analyses and have the same discount rates. Sure. And if you use a 7% discount rate, though, then the social cost of carbon is, is basically zero or possibly negative, depending on which models you use. 
And so in which case they would have to like subsidize coal-fired power plants. Holy moly. <laughs> wow. That's crazy, man. So their solution to that is they didn't just reluctantly admit that and say, well, you know, rules are rules and here's what the numbers say. No, they just didn't publish those numbers. And the absurdity is you'd see reports of the, you know, like for the clean power plant and all these regulations to limit carbon dioxide emissions. They would have a column in the report saying at a 7% discount rate, here's the benefits. There'd be an asterisk. You'd look down to see what's this telling me. And it would say, we actually don't have these numbers because the, you know, the task force from the EPA didn't provide these numbers. They only gave a 5%. So we're reporting those instead. So, I mean, the report was like lying about, it was mislabeling what the number was because the EPA just didn't do it. You know, oh, wow. and I contacted them and said, hey, do, do you guys have the numbers that from these? And they were, no, we didn't run those numbers. You know, <laughs> was, yeah. so, so it's or, or they, I wanted the intermediate step so I could have applied the rate. They said, no, we didn't save those. You know, we don't have that data run. Very so cool. I'm just saying, like, it's it's not, again, the way the public is hearing it. It's like, oh, the science is settled. Everybody agrees. Yes, a lot of scientists agree climate change is happening and, you know, emitting carbon dioxide causes more global warming that that's true but when you then say and so therefore the u.s government ought to do x y and z or the governments of the world ought to adopt this really draconian target no that's that's not just something physicists or chemists can chime in about they don't know what the trade-offs are from limiting they don't you know a physicist is not qualified to say well gee this might make poor people not get access to electricity in africa so maybe this isn't worth it and so i'm saying the standard economic literature does not support these radical aggressive measures and yet the public is being you know told like oh yeah this just follows you know really naturally from what the science says and no it doesn't it flatly contradicts what the economic science says even the guy who just won the nobel prize again this is not like i'm getting some you know skeptic crank guys who are off in the fringe this (laughs) is you know the mainstream stuff does not at all support these radical measures and it's just kind of crazy to me right on right on Anyway, so this show is brought to you in part by Free Talk Live, America's number one pro-liberty radio program. These guys are on 190 radio stations coast to coast, and they're live seven nights per week. So please check out freetalklive.com. Again, that's freetalklive.com. Anyway, so this Johnny Rocket will be right back with Mr. Bob Murphy and my co-host, Miss Raylene Lightheart, after this quick commercial break. Rock and roll. It's time to shake up your podcast feed, folks, by subscribing to Lions of Liberty, the only libertarian variety show out there. Spend Mondays with me, Mark Clare, as I feature in-depth interviews with great names in the libertarian community and fun roundtable discussions. Electric Liberty Land with me, Brian McWilliams, every Wednesday, your weekly dose of comedy, culture, and liberty. And Felony Fridays with me, John Odermatt, where I expose injustice in the broken criminal justice system. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and at lionsofliberty.com. This is Chris Spangle, and I am the host of We Are Libertarians, which you can find in iTunes, Google Play, or at wearelibertarians.com. We are a podcast that brings you all of the irreverence that modern politics deserves by examining current events from a libertarian perspective. So please, check us out at wearelibertarians.com. Good show, Johnny. Bam, I know, I know. And we're talking to the one and only Mr. Bob Murphy. 
right. Thank you so much for being here, man. And you remember last time we did a little thing called Rocket Fire. Rocket Fire. And what we do in Rocket Fire, sirs, I'm going to ask you a series of 10 questions. These questions are politically related. And if you can answer these questions between 30 to 60 seconds, that'd be badass. Mr. Murphy, are you ready to play Rocket Fire? I am ready. All right, here we go. <laughs> Question one. First, regarding the gold standard and currency, most Austrians I've seen favor a return to the gold standard and want a free banking system. However, what happens if demand for money exceeds the amount of gold? Would the currency be debased? And how exactly would the currency system work? Okay, great question. Um, if people want to Google Robert Murphy Mises return to gold standard, that'll pull up an article I did where... The, the, the quick answer is, if you wanted to go back to gold, the price at which you lock it in could just be higher than it used to be. So, yes, if, you, if they tried to make it go back, the gold is $35 an ounce. That would involve really painful deflation for a while. But there's no reason to do that. Like The important thing is just to set a market price and then lock that in going forward so that if new dollars are issued, there has to be a certain amount of gold backing it up. And so that way, asymptotically over time, you would get to full gold backing of, of all the dollars. So that's that's one way to do it. I should say, I'm not spending time trying to convince people that the government should go back on gold. I'm just trying to get people to you know, get away from government-issued money altogether. Mm-hmm. But in terms of the, the actual mechanics, the gold standard, that's the quick technical way you'd solve that one problem. Right on. Question two. Does Austrian economics put forward pattern predictions? Yeah, I would, I would say so. So I, this is something, and different Austrians you know, have different takes on this. But yes, yeah, certainly in the Hayekian tradition they were saying it's not that people make predictions um you know quantitative like gdp is going to be such and such but you can make qualitative patterns of predictions and and that's the way in terms of an open-ended future that that's the sort of thing that economic science gives us so we can say things like well you know the the nature of the business cycle and you can give the broad outlines of it but it's not that you're going to say ah yes in 2020 in the second quarter right. gdp is going to be down three <laughs> percent it doesn't give you statements like that but, but yeah, yeah o'driscoll and rizzo in their book economics of time and ignorance i think were the ones that inaugurated that phrase and i'm a student of rizzo so yes i think there's a lot there for people who want to look into that very cool Question three. Is it considered stealing to take pens from a bank? What about napkins from a fast food restaurant? I don't think so. I mean, I guess it would depend on the the napkins. No, I mean, because clearly, unless, <laughs> I, I think it has to do with social norms, right? So if you like unlock the thing and open it up and take a whole sleeve of napkins out, I would call that stealing because that's not, clearly not what they intend for you to do. Uh, the the pens from the bank thing I think is more borderline. They have that little chain on it sometimes, you know. Yeah, like, if you break the chain, clearly that's stealing. But if it's more like there's a, like a, a can and there's like thirty pens in there for you to sign your deposit slip and you do that and walk out with a thing, I'm guessing by them putting that many there, they're sort of signaling that you know, and especially if it's got the bank's name on it, then right. maybe they want that as advertising. Mm-hmm. So I would so there I would say yeah, there's no hard and fast rule. I think it would depend on what's the social norm and what is the expectation of what they're what they're doing. Right like, off. Do, do they they want you to take this stuff or not, or is it clearly implied versus are you really obviously doing what they weren't intending? I figured I'd throw like a morality question in there just to throw <laughs> it off, just to get off economics for a second. Question four. Is discrimination okay, and why is discrimination a natural thing, and is it reasonable to try and regulate discrimination? Okay, so it, in terms of the generic definition, that people discriminate all the time, right? right? Like even, even sometimes in some uses, you might say, ah, for the discriminating customer, come to our jewelry store. Well, you'll see, we have the finest cuts, and you know, that kind of thing. And so there, clearly, it, it doesn't mean anything bad. So obviously, in the context where people are against discrimination they mean based on personal characteristics that are irrelevant to the job. And so that's the sort of thing they mean. Um, And so there, I suppose, 
depending on the situation that I would say, yeah, probably there's certainly a lot of cases that I would say it would be immoral for someone to hold those views and to act on them. I guess there's a difference between prejudice and discrimination. In my mind, discrimination is, is acting on, you know, prejudiced beliefs. Sure. But in terms of fixing it or what, geez, what should we as a society do to minimize that? The market has built in penalties that are perfectly calibrated to the amount of the discrimination. So, you know, you got two qualified candidates. Um, one can produce $100,000 of value for your company and is a white guy, and the other guy is a black guy, and he can produce $130,000 of value and the salary and everything's the same. And you're a racist employer and you hire the white guy, you just cost yourself $30,000. Right. Like right. You know, in a very real sense. And so that's a built in automatic penalty, exactly calibrated and tailored to the degree of the discrimination, the way we've defined it there. And I think that's a far more effective thing. I mean, to me, it's nutty if we're saying, oh, our whole society is dominated by white supremacy and patriarchy and all this. And so what we should do is have periodic elections where we then install a government that's going to right all these wrongs. It's like, well, no, wouldn't the government that's elected by these white supremacist patriarchs install the system and solidify it? That seems kind of crazy. Sounds crazy. Question four. Is a capitalist system a system that only serves capitalists? No. And so the term capitalism was actually invented or, you know, popularized by Marxists to contrast it and to say, oh, we're socialists because we're in the interest of society, whereas capitalism is a system geared towards the interest of the capitalists, as you say. So it was originally a smear term. And no, people, what they mean is just laissez-faire market economy with private property rights and everything's got to be voluntary. No, that serves the interest of everybody rightly understood Right on. that it doesn't favor one group over the others. So Mises, by the way, he thought it was fine because he thought the, the special element of so-called capitalism is the accumulation of capital. In his mind, that was a really important thing in terms of raising living standards was to increase capital per capita, you know, per person. Right. And so he thought that was fine because like, he loved capital and he thought yeah sir you know i, I want to trumpet that but no it, it doesn't mean it merely serves the interest of a group workers in so-called capitalist countries have done far better than workers in socialist countries so that clearly shows you if you want to help workers you should embrace capitalism there you have it question six why is the austrian school of economics not accepted by the mainstream i know you've been asked this question a million times but i want to hear it again <laughs> okay well i would say it's it's more accepted now than it used to be all right so it depends at which time period you're talking about but certainly yes in the 1950s and 60s people looked down their noses and thought off oh, you know we, we've moved beyond that and there i would think it was a combination that the austrians were sort of old school verbal analysis whereas you know the cutting edge mainstream economics of those days were all high-powered math and so it looked like they were more scientific and precise than the austrians and also people wrongly thought that oh the free market failed during the great depression and then in the post-war era it seemed like the keynesian fine tuners the people who could just tweak these dials and, and you know, have the balance between unemployment and inflation and provide strong growth it seemed like they were right and then with the stagflation of the 70s and the recurring crises i think more and more people are realizing no these mainstream economists don't really know what they're doing and so other heterodox approaches are getting a bigger um, spotlight now including the Austrians. when i go and talk to regular people in the financial sector and show them Austrian business cycle theory. I don't use that terminology. I just say the Fed did this and did it. And they all totally get it. So I think it's, you know, the Austrian approach is getting a, a much bigger hearing now than it used to. Question seven. Is the Austrian business cycle theory based on praxeological conclusions? 
Yes. So the the standard way you would explain the theory does involve just logical deduction and you know this sorts of thing happens. Da, 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 da. Where judgment comes in though as an economist is to say is it applicable? So for example, to give you a different one, the minimum wage and, and to say that oh raising the minimum wage above the market level would cause unemployment. You know that's a logically deducted you know or deduced I should say theory, right? And you can go ahead and walk through that just in terms of basic reasoning. But then if somebody says, "Oh well, the minimum wage was raised several times during the Obama years," does that explain the Great Recession, the minimum wage hugs? I would say no. I don't think that was the primary thing going on there. So in terms, it, it does take judgment to know how to apply these things. But in terms of the you know the if then relationships, yeah, that's that's logically deduced. And what is would be called praxeology, uh, correlation versus causation, right? <laughs> well, I mean, it is partly that, but yeah, but also just to know in a particular instance that you know which theory is 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 more relevant, like what's what's the driving force here? Because like the minimum wage critique and the business cycle critique were both operative during the Obama years in terms of what the heck is going on, and so just it, it'd be judgment to say which one is the driving force. Right on, man. Question eight. According to Austrian ec- economics, what are the primary causes of boom and bust cycles? This is kind of an intro question, but a lot of people may not know. Right. And, and by the way, this is the area where when people say, well, gee, you know, I'm just a free market person. I like Milton Friedman. What else, you know, I, why do you get into this Austrian stuff? Isn't that just kind of weird? You know, you're just picking a niche. It's because of the Austrian approach to business cycles. Like that is the scientific contribution that is totally different, not just from the Keynesians, but also from the Chicago school. Right. And I think is, is very relevant. So what the theory says very quickly is interest rates serve a social purpose. Their prices, just like the price of crude oil means something. If the government came in and held the price of crude oil at $5 for seven years, that would mess everything up. It wouldn't be doing the economy any favors. It wouldn't be creating more oil. It would just be screwing up the allocation of oil and you know, and crippling long-term investment to find more supplies if they held the price down. So in a similar fashion, interest rates help coordinate production plans over time. They're like showing how impatient the economy is, if that's the way you want to think about it loosely. And so when the government comes in after a a bust and pushes down interest rates to, quote, stimulate the economy, that gives the wrong information to people. It makes it seem like there's more savings than there really are. Right. And so then it just sets up another unsustainable boom that has to crash again. So the only way to get out of these boom-bust cycles is if you have money in banking returning to the private sector. Very cool. Very interesting, too. Question nine. Is it wrong to move into better or open seats at a sporting event or a concert? So you paid your ticket and you're like, hey, I'm way in the back in the nosebleeds, but there's all these open seats in front of me. Is it wrong to take those seats? I, I, again, this is a, a thing where I, I think it would depend on the social norms. You know what I mean? Yeah, so, yeah. I, I could see why you'd say the grand scheme. Nah, it's, it's probably, you know, because you're not hurting anybody, that kind of thing. Again, I just, I don't go to enough events like that to be able to really say in terms of what, what does everybody think. Like, in other words, if the organizers know that's what everyone's going to do and they price accordingly, then I think it's fine. But again, if it's the sort of thing where they just assume nobody would do that and they're like, oh, I can't believe people moved up. I, exactly. You know, then, exactly. Uh, it's, so it's, kind of a, it's kind of a morality question in a way, though. You know, I was just like, I yeah. don't know, is it? I don't know. I don't have the answer myself. I think you're right, though. It's a social norm thing. I wouldn't do it. <laughs> There's a really. But by the way, just real quickly, um, I had Steve Landsberg on my podcast, and we were talking about the, the, he, at, the, at the University of Rochester, they were puzzling over why don't they raise prices on those box seats and whatever, because they sell out really fast, you know, when they have a new season. And so why don't they raise the price a little bit? Because, you know, they would clearly... St- and, the, and their conclusion was because if those things were open, then people would just move up into them so they want to make sure those things always sell out so that, anyway that was uh-huh. the third 
Interesting. Mm. Interesting. Okay. Question 10. We all like to be free, and nobody should have the right to censor us or to threaten us with harm if we don't shut up. Is there ever a good reason to command anyone to stay silent? Well, I mean, yeah, you're you're hiding from the Nazis and they're looking for you and your kid's about to ask you, you know, where his pacifier is. You could say, shh, be quiet. <laughs> exactly. <Okay>. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, if you mean ethically, I certainly think there's cases where you can tell people, you know, hey, I disagree with, with what you're saying so strongly you shouldn't do that. For example, like, you know, the punch of Nazis stuff. Okay. I made it quite clear go. that, hey, I don't think people should be talking like that. That's not a good or this... You know, someone recently tweeted out uh, that Ray Butler, a two-word tweet saying, abort billionaires. You know, and I retweeted. I said, you know, I'm not like a snowflake withering here. And, oh, I'm so outraged and shocked by this joke. But <laughs> on the other hand, isn't it kind of weird that right. leftists can just openly joke about murdering people and nobody cares? And yet a right winger can just say something that involves, you know, mildly stereotypical humor. And, oh, my gosh, the guy has to give up his career. Isn't that kind of weird? Yeah. So, yeah. If, we, if what you're saying is, can we like physically stop people from doing it? No. And, and on the other hand, too, private companies certainly, you know, they can choose content. And I'm concerned about the deplatforming and all that stuff. But strictly speaking, you know, if you own a platform, you have the legal right to say who can who can use it or not. Yeah, like Facebook, that they want to ban people. Fine, let them ban them, but they're going to lose money in the process. Right. And like I said, I can have my own judgment about whether what their decision was good or bad. So, I mean, I have my own speech as well. Right. So it's not it's not like a contradiction for me to say, hey, I disagree that they did such and that Patreon kicked that guy off. I don't think they should have done that. I'm allowed to have that opinion and say it. Right. <laughs> no, I'm with you on that. Yeah. And the bonus question. This is a good one. I've been saving this because I really want to know. Is there anything you don't agree with Mises or Rothbard on? Bam. I want to hear this. Yes. So um, my dissertations, you know, one of the key components of it was a critique of the pure time preference theory of interest. So, yeah, the standard orthodox way that Austrian economists explain interest rates, I think, is uh, has some serious problems with it. And so that was very quickly in case the, the listeners say, oh, my gosh, you're leaving us hang, hanging here, Murphy. Their idea is that consumption sooner rather than later is, is pr always preferred as like a sort of a rule. And there's a lot of counter apparent counterexamples like, gee, wouldn't you rather if you're in the in the winter and someone says you want an ice cream cone now or in the summer, some people might say the summer. So that's a future good. And so they have to get in the, to my mind, twisted in knots trying to explain that away. And I just think it's just simpler to say the time element is one important thing, okay. just like where something's physically located, you know, but we don't have something called proximity preference to say, oh, other things equal good should be closer rather than farther. We don't need to use such a, a concept. We can just explain stuff much more simply. So that that's one area where I disagree. Right on. And that's Rocket Fire. Give it up for Robert P. Murphy. Journey Rocket always launching ideas. We're going to take a quick commercial break and we'll be right back. Rock and roll. Are you tired of banging your head against the proverbial wall of politics and getting nowhere toward actually making your life more free? Are you tired of interview podcasts that have the same guests as every other libertarian interview podcast out there? Are you tired of hearing the same news stories that you can hear on the mainstream media? Then you need to listen to The Lava Flow, where we don't do politics and we don't do the major stories that exist only to divide you. We talk about news that affects you and your freedom, and we work to find solutions that can actually help you to be more free. Lava stands for libertarian, anarcho-capitalist, voluntarist, and agorist. And if you consider yourself to be in any of those categories, all of those categories, or just interested in learning about them, then The Lava Flow podcast is for you. Check us out at thelavaflow.com. 
The Lava Flow Podcast, channeling the flow of information to the libertarian, anarcho-capitalist, voluntarist, and agorist community. TheLavaFlow.com Off a Johnny Rocket, and I'm here with my Ray Truth, Miss Raylene Lightheart. Hey guys. All right, Raylene, you've been very patiently waiting, very patiently waiting after Rocket Fire with Mr. Murphy, and <laughs> yep, you have the floor, Miss. So make it count. Okay, make I, it count, Raylene. I'm going to start with kind of a difficult one, and so listen carefully, ask questions. You're going to help me because I read an essay that you co-wrote once about Hans Hermann Hoppe's argumentation ethics, and I thought the nuance was fascinating. Can you explain the inherent flaw in his claim that only debate slash argument can justify a proposition or belief, and why does this matter? Oh my God, that is great. That is a great question. Okay, so you want me to first explain what his basic thing is and then what my problem was? Yes, please. Okay. Yeah, Hoppe's argumentation ethics was was it was like the definitive. If it's correct, it's like an even higher level defense of libertarian ethics and property rights, because he was saying um, he was drawing on the work of Habermas, saying there's certain um, norms that we bring to when if we're going to have an argument, there's certain things that we're implicitly agreeing to. Um, for example, that we, you know we're not going to use for like you're not going to pull a gun on me and say you better agree with me, right? Like th- that, you've now you're not having an argument anymore. It's not using reason. It's using for you know. So it's it's not even an argument. That's it's just whatever. Okay. So that's the idea. He's saying there are certain implicit norms that are established there, and then he also had this idea of a performative contradiction, mm-hmm. which is that you're contradicting yourself by the very action. So if I say Bob Murphy is dead, that's a performative contradiction, right? Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. you guys could say it if I if I'm dead, it's not a contradiction. So it's not saying. One plus one equals four, or you know, a and not a. That would be a direct contradiction, but a performative one means by your action if you're doing something that is implicitly contradicting the principle involved. Okay, so then with those, Hoppe tries to argue that uh, by engaging in a debate over you know any kind of political system or or system of property rights, Mm -hmm. you must be implicitly admitting that your opponent like owns his body. Right, because if you owned it or somebody else owned it, then how could he have a, a reasonable argument with you if he didn't own his lungs or something? You see what I mean? So he's saying, just like you, we, you must implicitly be agreeing, you can't pull a gun and point it at me. By the same token, you must be agreeing that I have the use of my body. And and he tried to spin out and show the whole standard beginning point of libertarian ethics of self ownership and homesteading that has to all be included, or else it's not really a fair debate. Isn't you know, it like that only a, argument can justify a proposition or an ideology or a belief? Right. And so what he's, yeah. So ultimately his, his conclusion is if you try to have a rational argument, a reasoned debate upholding anything other than libertarian property rights and ethics, you're engaging in a performative contradiction. Okay. So that's, that's where he, that's where he goes. So you can see how that's a very powerful, you know, that's not just wow. about incentives. Yeah. That's not just about natural law. That's like a logical conclusion. Like, whoa, the very nature of reason itself upholds libertarianism that you're contradicting yourself. If you deny libertarianism in a debate, that's where he's going with it. So you can see why it's so powerful. But with uh, Gene Callahan and I, we had an article in the journal Libertarian Studies. Unfortunately, I just don't think that 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 works. And so just real quick, some of the problems that we saw, even if you believed that, it doesn't 
show it, it's not really enough it doesn't like show which types of beings have that applied to them like couldn't an animal rights activist say aha so you see it's wrong for you to kill a cow or a chicken right because to try to justify killing a chicken you would be contradicting yourself mm-hmm. hmm. you know and you would just say well what you know no chickens don't count and so given the, whatever method you're going to use to say no chickens aren't covered by this couldn't a status say well you know during you know uh, someone in a military draft situation the people we're drafting don't count you get, I mean, and, and so you can say, no, it applies to all people. And then so why couldn't the PETA activists say it applies to all organisms or all things that are way over 10 pounds? You know, so my point is there's a lot more involved to try to just get what Hoppe has in mind as far as libertarianism. Um, another example is, OK, yes, you need to own your body in order to debate. And so if that proves self-ownership, well, then by the same token, you need to be standing on real estate. You need to be standing on the ground to debate. Interesting. And so did Hoppe, wow. did Hoppe just prove that everybody has to own land? And no, he doesn't think he proved that. You could be standing on someone else's land during a debate. He would have no problem. And so I'm saying, okay, well, then why couldn't you be a slave and still debating and somebody else owns your body? You know, <laughs> so, so anyway, I'm just, it was, it was things like that we pointed out that I, unfortunately, I don't think it works, even though I agree. If it did work, that would be a beautiful, amazing result. Yeah. My husband and I got in a long talk about it. It was a very good one. Thank you. to Bob Murphy. Ground control to Bob Murphy. Paging you from the ground. Well, anyways, glad to have you on the show. Have to admit, I'm a little confused why you decided to dress up like a zombie for a radio show. But we all have our quirks. Most people like to keep them private. But hey, who are we to judge a man for putting on makeup and talking economics? But while you're here, I wanted to ask you regarding your book Chaos Theory. Can you please explain to a layman what chaos theory is and why you chose it as a book title? And also, for the market anarchist, what are some examples of chaos theory that we see in daily life? And what areas of economics and politics overlap with the theory of chaos generally? Okay, so the the actual title, where that book came from, is I, I wrote an essay on private law and then private defense. And I was going to publish it in this newsletter that this guy, Jeremy Sapienza, who had the website antistate.com was running. And he told me, no, these essays, you should make a booklet out of this. And it was his idea to call it chaos theory. And I think the, the idea was that, well, because in you know the scientific application of chaos theory, it's usually showing how, you know, order emerges even out of complex chaotic systems. Mm-hmm. And there's a sort of higher level symmetry and order that pops out of it. And so I think the idea was, you know, a lot of people think, oh, anarchy, there's no state involved. It's just going to be, you know, crazy chaos in a pejorative sense. And then you realize, no, but the sort of spontaneous order. So I think that's, you know, where he was coming from. And I thought, okay, yeah, that is kind of a catchy title. So that's where the the title came from. And there there is the the connection there. So it's, I don't invoke the scientific version of chaos theory in the, in the papers or in the essays themselves, but there is that analogy there. Okay, Raylene, got time for one more quick question. Okay, so I'm not an identity politics kind of gal, but how important do you think it is to get more women interested in human action and economic understanding? And do you think it is secondary to understanding and respecting self-ownership for women? So I think it's important for everybody to understand the, you know, the basic principles of economics and you know, at least be exposed to the philosophy of libertarianism and so then in terms of me amongst my things besides like generating 
content and trying to advance the frontiers of the theory, but also trying to popularize, you know, this podcast I do with Tom or my show or a lot of the writing I do is to teach these things to the general public that, yes, obviously we can step back and look and see, huh, for whatever reason, it does seem like libertarianism and Austrian economics so far has mostly appealed to men and not women. And why is that? You know, just in terms of you know, outreach and whatever, and try, try to figure out, is there something, you know, we're doing? Um, I think it's gotten a lot better, but you know, you know, I used to go to conferences and it would be like 30 guys and two women. And now it's, it's not 50, 50, but it's much closer. Right. And everybody is absolutely, uh, there, there's no way I can say this without sounding, but the, the people who go now are more normal than they used to be. <laughs> like, it, yeah. like it used to be. And, oh, and I'm man. like, hey, I'm a fan of Star Trek. And so if I say it, it used to be like a Star oh, Trek convention, great. I say that with love. Yeah. But that's, you know, and so I think it's just, that's just how it is that, you know, young adolescent boys get into like weird stuff on their own and they're the trailblazers. And then as something becomes more mainstream and normalized, like more quote, normal looking people show up. So I think that's just a normal process that I'm saying mm-hmm. these things. I think partly it was, you know, something that's originally dominated by a certain demographic and then. Others might not feel welcome just because, oh, those people aren't like me. And then as it gets more mainstream, more people come into it. So, well, we, we have a lot of big nerds and uh, graph why people and numbers nerds? guys. Why, and, why? Well, I, lo- I love nerds. And so I'm a, I was a libertarian first and then be through libertarianism and understanding self-ownership, I actually was drawn to economics. But a lot of ladies that I know actually talk about how scared they are to dip in because it sounds so daunting. And I think that they're missing the social aspect. And understanding what human action actually is a social science. And I think they'd be more interested, don't you? Yeah, I think so, too. And that's it's funny. Like, so I am good at math and I originally wanted to go into physics and I switched to economics. And there are certain mathematical things in economics that I still do in my daily you know, work. But it's what draw, drew me to economics was more the same thing that why some people love biology or whatever. Like, you know, there's a pond and this, this incredible ecosystem and look at all the complex things going on. And it seems real simple on the surface. The more you study, the more complex and all these processes. And that's kind of like what the economy is. The people just sort of take it for granted. The more you study it, the more you realize mm. all these people interacting and all their plans interlocking. And just to, when you go to the grocery store, how can all the food and everything be on the shelves? Mm-hmm. Like thousands and thousands of people all had to have their plans coordinated to make that happen. And, it, and geez, isn't that amazing? It's exciting. Yeah, just ah. how that happens. Like as a social it's thing. Cool. Yeah. It's and so yeah, beautiful. just to study that. Yeah. Yes. Great answer. Thank you. Okay, Mr. Murphy. Thank you so much for being here. Raylene, prepare for landing. Roger that, Johnny. Seatbelts and shoulder harnesses. Your body, your choice. Landing gear and downward expanders. NAP initiated. Anti-state superchargers. Defract and woke. Landing lights and guest websites. Robert P. Murphy, give us your .com, sir. Consulting by RPM.com and also BobMurphyShow.com. Rock and roll. Hey, seriously, thank you so much for being here. And if you like what Mr. Murphy had to say here on the show, please make sure you check out our after party and our all-nighter which you can find at supportblastoff.com for just a dollar a show you can hear the rest of this awesome interview anyways it was Johnny Rocket always launching ideas and we'll see you next week rock and roll bye